This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Let's check in now with Keith Baldry, Global News Bureau Chief at the Legislature. Keith, thanks for coming in. Happy Boxing Day. Same to you, sir. Uh, you getting out there bargain hunting or hitting the malls or no, what? I avoid the malls like a plague <laughs> on Boxing Day. I'm the, uh, the poster boy for the non-shopper at this time of year. Okay, you and me both. Okay, <laughs> um, let's talk a little politics and stuff that's yeah. going on. First of all, the ride-hailing thing. You know, I used to love talking about ride-hailing, and now it's kind of like, oh, man, are we ever going to get these services? All, all we ever do is talk about it. Yeah. That's what actually happened. Well, here's the, here's the deal, though. This is a government that promised over and over again that we were going to have these services by Christmas. Christmas has come and gone. Uh, They have not delivered. Is this a problem for Horgan? Well, this is a promise they reluctantly made. I don't, I've, you and I have talked about this before. Right hailing is not part of the, the NDP's political DNA. It's a, it's a non-union, low-paying, part-time occupation. It's the gig, gig economy. Uh, it's unregulated for a large part. The NDP doesn't, historically, doesn't really... Uh, Horgan probably wishes he didn't have to deal with it at all. Yeah, I've never detected a lot of enthusiasm by the government to embrace this industry. I think it's well-established. The, the taxi industry, the entrenched taxi industry is politically powerful. In Metro Vancouver, where you know the election is won and lost on a few suburban ridings, and that's where the taxi industry is mo- most uh, powerful. So the NDP has punted this entire issue off on t- into the lap of the obscure, little-known Passenger Transportation Board, which nobody even knew existed until ride-hailing came along. They, yeah. they were in the business of okaying and approving taxi licenses. Right. They've got a small staff. Uh, it's Christmas time. Presumably, a number of people are off. They cannot process these applications, one assumes, that are there from Uber and Lyft in any timely fashion which is why I think it was a, an unreasonable uh, promise to make that thinking this was going to be up and running before Christmas because I just don't think the resources are there to well, that. Well, how is it unreasonable when he's been promising it for three years? Well, like he said, we get it in 2017, then we get it in 2018, and then we get well, it in Well, I think it was unreasonable on their part to, to give this mirage that this could be done before Christmas because they just don't have the resources to pull this off. I don't think there was ever in the game plan uh, to get this thing done. I think they miscalculated uh, what a big deal this was going to be to actually create. I mean, they've got... They've okayed, uh, the board's okay to license in, in Tofino, you know. Okay. And Whistler, yeah, that's Whistler. the whistle, it's called yeah. the Whistle app. Exactly. Yeah, um, it's not going to be operating in the lower mainland. No, we're not going to see hundreds of Uber or Lyft drivers out there anytime yeah. soon. The class four license requirement, uh, even to get your class five, if you're a young driver, it takes a long time. Yeah. And you just don't snap your fingers and have this thing done overnight. So this is going to be a process that's going to continue into the new year, which is why I think it's one of those issues that so we end 2019 with, and it's still going to be very very much a big political issue in 2020. Do you think there's any possibility? I think this this board that you mentioned, this passenger transportation board, is supposed to operate independently of yeah. government, yeah. but it's been under a lot of pressure from government as well, suggesting to them, for example, ooh, we're worried about Carmageddon mm-hmm. and traffic gridlock if there's too many ride-hailing vehicles on the street. Do you think that this board could surprise Uber and Lyft and bring in some caps or limits on the number of vehicles they're going to allow to be licensed. Oh, yeah. They had had earlier indicated to be no limit, but I wonder if they're having a rethink on that. I don't think anything's off the table here with the Passenger Transportation Board. I think they're probably going to flex their independence here on a number of issues, knowing that at the end of the day, their master government here is really not... I mean, this is not an issue that's near and dear to the NDP. It's not like solving the housing crisis or, or even improving transit or doing a number of things 
things that they, they like to do, social service improvements, that type of thing. Uh, right hailing, I just don't think, is in the top ten of the NDP's priorities. The, the liberals continue to heap scorn on the NDP government for failing to deliver on this, but I, I always, you know, Where I always kind of gag in a little bit. Exactly. I mean, they had so many years to do this themselves, and they were obedient to this taxi lobby exactly. as well. So, uh, I mean, I, I think in some ways the liberals are kind of enjoying watching the NDP struggle with this. Yeah. Especially if they think that if the taxi industry really is that powerful in Surrey, and they can swing a few ride and Bur- and swing a few ridings back into the liberal uh, column in the next election. I mean, is that possible? Oh, that- sure. Oh. I, I think I think uh, those suburban ridings were won by fairly narrow margins by right. the NDP and by the liberals before that. I mean, these are swing ridings; they go back and forth between the parties. And the next election has every uh, prospect of shaping up to be a very close result again. Yeah. And it, it could literally come down to three or four ridings in Metro Vancouver that may determine who forms government in Victoria. And the taxi industry, I think, is uh, disproportionately powerful in a number of those ridings. Let's talk about some of the other hot issues here as the as the year draws to a close. The one that we talked about a lot in 2019, ICBC and the continuing problems there. The government lost a big court case on this file in 2019 when they tried to bring in a limit on the amount of expert testimony allowed in these ICBC court cases to drive down costs. The trial lawyers were mad as hell about it. They won in court. The government had to that whole thing was quashed. Yep. Government says that's going to cost them a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars potentially. So the ICBC dumpster fire, as EB, David Eby famously called it, still burning. How big of a problem is this for the government here? Oh, I think it's right up there as one of their biggest problems because yeah. it has a potential impact on a number of levels. It could turn the budget into a deficit. ICBC was supposed to uh, carve off a billion dollars in expenses or in terms of losses this fiscal year. Uh, there's no sign they're going to do that. You mentioned that court case they lost. David Eby puts the price of that loss in court to m- more than $400 million right. for some some reason they want to book it all in one year. Uh, but he admits that if they lose another case, which is a uh, limit on soft tissue, uh, yep. soft uh, tissue um, payouts, Awards, yeah. uh, he says basically if they lose these cases, he uses the word uh, catastrophe to describe what the impact could be because it could just really wreck ICBC's bottom line and therefore the provincial government's bottom line. So this is one of the biggest headaches the NAP faces, I think, in the coming year because there's no sign they're on top of this thing. I mean, they're making some progress on some fronts, but the last fiscal update we got from the government, uh, no reason to cheer there from the ICBC financial picture. Yeah, another another vulnerability for the government on that one is another cost-cutting move that EB had brought in was moving ICBC cases out of the Supreme Court yeah. of BC and into these civil resolution tribunals, as they're called, so out of court and into these tribunals, that's another one where the trial lawyers are suing them. And if they lose that one, I mean, there's two more court cases looming here that they could lose that could cost them a lot of money. Well, and more than one lawyer has pointed out, uh, I think, that uh, he's basically trying to wrest a whole bunch of business out of the court system and telling the courts how to behave. And judges don't like that. I mean, they don't like to hear that type of stuff. So he's up against a pretty entrenched uh, group there, not just lawyers, but judges as well, who who sort of, I think, uh, look askance at any uh, politician telling them how to behave and how to act in that court system. So he's got a big uh, obstacle and big hurdles to clear here, and I'm not convinced he's going to get over them. I think one indicator of just how dangerous the whole situation is politically for the government came when David Eby, a couple of weeks ago, basically delayed a a new rate hike yeah. ask for to by ICBC saying hang on a sec 
let's not go into a new rate system here or a new rate increase in the new year. Let us do some more work here. Is is that an? In, I thought for sure that man that just shows they're worried here. I think they're worried about people getting walloped yeah. with a big ICBC rate hike in 2020 that could really hurt them. Well, you know, you've got a, a series of governments. You go back to Glenn Clark in 1996 on the eve of the provincial election. He froze ICBC rates. Yeah. He was Mister Freeze. It was yeah. politically popular. It's not a good pu- public policy uh, endeavor, but it never makes sense uh, politically. Opposition parties today always criticize governments for doing that. The Liberals kept ICBC rates artificially low by dipping into the reserves and not passing on the real cost to the consumer. And I think the NDP is going to find itself right against the wall here, just like the Liberals were, that it's one thing to say from a public policy point of view, you should be paying more for your auto insurance. It's quite another thing to say we want to be reelected and we want you to pay more for your auto insurance. The two don't don't go together, which is why I, see, I think you're going to see the NDP monkey with rates as well, just yeah. like the Liberals did before them. I think you're right. And another big problem for the government is this continuing problems in the BC forest industry. Oh, what a mess. And especially this strike on Vancouver Island that toward the end of the year here, Premier John Horgan was signaling very clearly that he wanted that strike uh, resolved. It's going on six months now, 3,000 people mm-hmm. out of work, lots of spin-off damage in the economy on sort of central north Vancouver Island. He wanted it fixed. It hasn't been fixed. Nope. What's going on with that? So the latest was the Labor Minister, Harry Baines, has written a letter to both both parties here, both sides in the dispute, pointing out that uh, the mediators that were involved here, Vince Reddy and Amanda Rogers, who are professional mediators and very good track records. Everybody knows yeah. Vince Reddy's the miracle worker. But they had been hired by the company and the union to try to resolve this dispute. Baines has now notified them he wants those mediators to report to him on right. what's going on in the talks. Right. That provides a little glimmer of hope that now if Baines is made aware of what the, what's really going on there, not taking one side over the other, but listening to someone like Vince Reddy, perhaps he can pressure one of these one of the sides who he, who Reddy may think is not doing enough to settle this dispute to actually get in the game and make some concessions to from either the company or from the union. I'm I'm not sure who's most to blame here, but I think that's a glimmer of hope that wasn't there just a week ago. But having said that, they're still waiting for Vince Reddy to order the two sides back to the table because as it stands now. Uh, he hasn't done that, which speaks to his view that there's no sense doing that right now because the two sides are firmly entrenched. The only thing Baines can do to end this uh, arbitrarily would be to pass legislation. There's nothing in the Labor Code that gives him the power to end a labor dispute. The only cooling off period, as we call it, uh, can only come through legislation. The House doesn't sit until second week of February, so we're still a ways away from that. Let's go to your calls now. Hi, Rod and Langley. Hey, guys. I think that the people in B.C. are pretty tired of paying exorbitant auto rates um, compared to other provinces. So, Keith, what's your assessment of the real reason that they won't let ICBC go and they won't let competition come in? Who are they protecting? Because we know the government doesn't do anything for the people. They strictly do things for themselves. So what's the real reason? Well, I think ICBC is basically a sacred cow to the NDP. This was a, a shining jewel when it started under Dave Bear, the 1970s government. Uh, so you look at things the NDP revere is sacrosanct. One of them is ICBC. Another one's the Agricultural Land Reserve. Another one's the BC Labor Code. Uh, these are near and dear to NDP hearts. So I don't see them privatizing auto insurance at all, ever, in this mandate, or if they win another mandate, or two or three. But I do think um, there is a fundamental crisis crisis in the insurance industry. And it was first, you know, uh, Mike and I were just talking off air. The first guy who flagged this thing was the former liberal appointed 
chair of the board of ICBC, Barry Penner, the former attorney general. I remember talking to him two years before the 2017 election. And he was saying, look, this is a problem in auto insurance. It's right across the country, and it's not confined to B.C. The cost of repairing an automobile is exorbitant. He was one of the first guys who yep. told me that, you know, when you take a car and to fix it now, all these embedded computers yeah, and cameras and a bumper is that it's costing us a fortune. Yeah, one of, one of the EB's trying to get to the bottom of why are our, our uh, body shops costing yeah. so much more than they used to. It's not just electrical uh, fixes, which is a big component of it, but why does it cost so much more to fix a bumper of a Datsun than it did in in 1999? It's, it's got not a camera just in it now. Yeah, so those are some of the challenges ICBC is facing. So I don't think it's confined to the fact whether it's public or private. Uh, caller, I think it's uh, more endemic to the the industry. Itself. Well, here's another th- another reason is there's over five thousand employees at ICBC, oh, and they're all members of a union. Yep. And uh, this is a very union allied government. There's no way they're gonna, no, you know, privatize some crown corporation with five thousand. Exactly. Union Very members. good point. Uh, no, another reason why it will never be privatized under NDP's watch. I'm not convinced the liberals are going to go that route themselves. I mean, I think this is a, a more to it than just public versus private. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Mark in Vancouver. Hi. Yes, the government should do what it needs to to reform ICBC. Any legislation should uh, attached to it should have the notwithstanding clause and that will will override the judges which i think are too high-handed here yeah well that's interesting i don't see that happening though the notwithstanding clause isn't really what can the government do though to fix this it's it's, uh, they're getting shut down on a number of fronts if they lose this case about limiting payouts on soft tissue and i'm not convinced they will i mean i've talked to other lawyers who say look at alberta does that well penner Penner, uh, i was gonna say david eby the attorney general has said he's more confident of winning these yeah. these other cases that are still before the courts than he was about the one they yeah. lost. Yeah, the one the one of limiting uh, expert witnesses that was a yeah. bit of a risky. Even internally, I'm told they didn't think they were going to win that from the get go. Yeah. I still understand why he's booked four hundred million dollars of a loss in one. I remember talking to EB the day before that they lost that case. He hadn't seen the judgment yet. <laughs> I said, "Are you worried about this uh, this judgment tomorrow?" And he said. Yeah, <laughs> I am. And I thought, oh, that's it. They're going to yeah. lose. Uh, one of the most revealing comments David Evie's made on this entire thing uh, <laughs> a month ago, he's on Linda Steele's show. And yeah. Linda was asking him you know, some tough questions. And you could hear the exasperation coming from Evie. And he said, look, yeah. I did not get into politics to run an auto insurance company, which <laughs> speaks volumes because that's exactly right. I mean, Evie is very an idealistic reformer of the justice system. It's not about public auto insurance. And this thing is just proving to be a bigger headache than he can solve. Is this a good issue for the liberals? I mean, anytime you try to pin the liberals down, and they love to heap scorn on the government over this whole debacle at ICBC. But then when you ask them, well, what would you do to fix it. They say, well, we'll review it. The only you know, they don't want to say specifically what no. they would do. I, I think where the liberals would benefit, just like any opposition party benefits from any issue, the government is always tagged with the blame. Uh, the voters can take out their anger, usually on a government. They don't take it out on an opposition party. So that's where I think the liberals might benefit. But you're right. They won't. It's like nailing jelly to the wall here with the liberals. They haven't got a firm position on what to do either. Okay, what else is big in 2020? We just got a minute left. Here. Well, we got the BC Teachers Federation contract. Okay, what's still, going on there? I still think we're looking at job action sometime this year, either the end of the current school year or the beginning of the next school year. Because I just a strike. Don't see th- you think it'll be a strike in 2020? 
Uh, I, I hate to say yes, but I think uh, at some point the TF's going to do something because I just don't see this thing being resolved at, uh, the, at the negotiating table. And there's no end in sight for the forestry crisis. It's not just the strike here on Vancouver Island. You've got mill closures that are going to be pr- that are permanent up and down the interior at the north of BC. It's a fundamental restructuring of what used to be BC's number one industry. And a lot of towns and a lot of people are going to be hurting as a result. You think it's a tough year coming up for John Horgan? I think it's tougher than it has been because yeah. uh, he's got uh, a worsening economy. It's yeah. going to be. He hasn't got a lot of dollars to play with. Carol James's budget's going to be very tight when we see it in February. Uh, he's uh, hinted very strongly to me that he's going to shuffle his cabinet. We'll see if oh, that yeah. happens sooner than later. Thanks for coming in. All right, that's Keith Baldry, the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News.